two thoughts that went through my mind. One is, Terry, if you just would have recorded Scott a little longer, we could have called it a day, and we'd be out of here. Um, but he left me here to preach. And the second thing, I, uh, forgive me, the second thing, when I saw him laying on the grass, nose in the grass, I thought, oh, I hope there are no ants getting into this. This is... I, and does he know that in Israel there's not luscious grass like that very much? That you're laying in the dirt. And that's exactly the kind of thing we want to think about this morning. Postures of worship, that's what we're looking at. Adventures in worship, postures in worship. And we've looked at a number of them already. Hands raised, bowed. Jacob on his cane, leaning, aged Jacob leaning on his cane. Um, on our knees, those sorts of postures, and this morning another posture, and it comes out in a passage that I'm going to read now, 1 Kings chapter 18, the verses uh, 16 through 39, it's, uh, so it, the words will be on the screen, there are Bibles you can turn to, if you have a smartphone you want to find it on, or an iPad, that's okay too. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 18. There's a little bit of a context here that I want to give you. This is um, a, a time when Israel was without rain for a long time. Ahab was the king in Israel, and his wife Jezebel was the queen. And Elijah had sort of announced this drought coming, and then he went into hiding. At least he didn't make many public appearances. And then he wants to meet Ahab again, the king. And, and there's a guy named Obadiah who was the manager of the household of King Ahab. That's sort of the intermediate. And a Obadiah is a secret believer in the midst of all this uh, Baal worship. Obadiah is hiding the prophets of God while Jezebel is trying to track down and kill those prophets. Um, Obadiah risks his life and hides them, and he becomes the intermediary. So we begin now with uh, 16, verse 16 of 1 Kings 18. Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Elijah, Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I've not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You've abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? That word waver translates a word that we're going to see in a moment. And it's translated danced around ecstatically. Same word here. So I just want you to note that. Um, where am I? Uh, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. The people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left. I don't know, a little martyr complex maybe. Did he forget about the hundred prophets that uh, Obadiah had been hiding? Okay, but he says, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal had four, has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let them 
let them choose one for themselves and uh, let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He is God. And all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there's so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given to them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Oh, Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced, same word as waver, translated earlier. They danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Uh, Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seas of sea. He arranged the wood, cut the bull in pieces, laid it on the wood, Then he said to them, fill four large jars of water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said. And they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered. And they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know you, O Lord, know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. And all the, when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. You know, Pastor Scott, you may remember when he started the series, he says, well, Will's going to preach this one. And ye, I'm reminding him to be careful how to pronounce the word prostrate, right? Prostrate. If I mispronounce it, I'm referring to something else, right? A male organ, prostate. It's prostrate. Uh, Ted Gosser just before the service said, maybe you ought to use the word prone instead of prostrate. But that's what we're talking about. We're talking about just being on your face like Scott's position was being just overwhelmed, giving yourself totally in awe to what God is doing. 
And that's what we see here. But first we have to talk a little bit about this dramatic contest that's going on. It's a dramatic contest because it's a contest between Baal and God, the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The context is this. There's three years there's been no rain. Elijah three years ago said, I'm here to tell you, God's not going to send you any rain until I say the word again. And there was no rain for three years. And now what's at stake on this mount, this Mount Carmel, which is a mountain that's fairly close. It sort of juts into the Mediterranean Sea. And if there's any place where there might be some moisture that comes now and then, if there's any place in Israel where there might be some greenery, it'd be on Mount Carmel and around it. And it could be seen as one of the strongholds of the god Baal because this is essentially that kind of a contest. There's an, um, an agenda that Ahab and Jezebel were Who could be trusted was the big question. Who could be trusted? Could Baal be trusted? Could God be trusted? The agenda for uh, Ahab and Jezebel was to eliminate the worship of God, kill off the prophets of God, and establish the, uh, the worship of Baal. Um, what's said about Ahab, this is in a previous chapter, Ahab becomes the king of Israel, and one of the things that's said about him, this is 16 verse 30, Ahab did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Why? Well, he built a temple to Baal, he built an altar to Baal, they're killing off the prophets of God. It says in verse 36, he did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, and anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. That was their agenda. Who could be trusted? Baal means Lord. Baal was the God of weather. Baal was the God of rain. Baal was often pictured with a, with a lightning bolt in his hand. He provided the rain. Could he be trusted? And so this contest is here. Elijah is God's prophet on Mount Carmel. He's the only prophet there. There's hundreds of prophets of Baal. And Elijah gives this very direct challenge. Let's set up sacrifices to our gods. Let's get it all ready. And let's see who starts the fire, who brings the fire to do the sacrifice. That's the contest. It was a contest to a people, for a people, in front of a people who were wavering back and forth. Is God the one we can trust? Is Baal the one we ought to be trusting? It's the kind of thing that also tugs at your and my heart, if we're really honest with ourselves. What do we trust? Who do we trust? There's a tremendous spiritual warfare that's going on. And it's a warfare, I wanted to say, it's a warfare for our hearts, but it's a bigger thing than this. It's a warfare for the control of the world. Satan wants to control politics. Satan wants to control education. There's a war going on for just world views. What's the right world view? How do we look at the world? How do we look at our lives? What's going on here? Politics, business, education, all of that. And our hearts as well. You may remember how even Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 7. 
He talks about this struggle that he has, interior struggle. The things that I don't want to do, those are the things that I find myself doing. And then the things that I, I know I should be doing, I just can't find myself doing those. We have an enemy that seeks to kill and destroy and disable us. And this enemy often comes into the church as well. That's where he wants control. I've, uh, I'm, in a, I'm in a position where I, I'm not only a pastor here at this church, but I travel around a bit uh, with, in, in my position as the stated clerk of the classes, the regional body. And, and I just returned from Denver yesterday where I had to deal with some other things uh, with the church in that area. And one of the things that I just see again and again is that Satan wants to destroy, divide, eliminate the church. There, there is schism, there is conflict, and it just hurts the church and it destroys its witness in the context of the communities in which it lives and serves. Tremendous warfare going on. So the question is, okay, and what about you? What stresses you out? What do you count on? What makes you feel secure and, or insecure? And it, it, it can go in all kinds of directions. You know, some watch the stock market just going up and down and know that uh, um, um, their investment in the stock market is going up and down. Or, or you're thinking about, okay, am I going to get a paycheck? Um, okay, am I going to get the money that I depend on from the government every month? Is that coming this month? Okay. Politically, we got to get our act together or things will just fall to pieces? Is that what's stressing you out? Are, are, are you thinking family? Okay, family. I'm counting on my family in my old age. I'm telling my kids I'm counting on you in my old age. Paul says, you can come and live with us in Calgary. I said, oh, Canada, cold? No, maybe not. I'll stay in Southern Canada. Anyway. Homes, paying our mortgages, can we get that done? Or do we know where the next meal is coming from? And do you know what it does to our hearts? It just closes our hearts up tight because we get so nervous about who's going to rip me off now? What's going to happen to me here? And I got to take care of myself. And my world is me. And everybody revolves around me. I don't know how many of you follow people on Facebook. I don't do it very much, but a little bit. And there are some Facebook postings that uh, I think they really do think the world revolves around them, totally. This week I saw a post. Oh, there was a snake in my driveway and it scared me to pieces and I drove my car over it again and again. Or, oh, there's flies in my garage. What do I do about the flies in my garage? Or, 
my kids just didn't do it right today, and I'm just so depressed. And it's like, wow, I'm entering into their lives. It's like they're the only ones alive, and everybody else has to kind of tune in to what's going on with them. And then, do we ask ourselves even questions that Jesus asks of us? The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. That little section where he talks about worry. And he essentially says to those on the, that he's preaching to in this, and to us, he says, worry is a pagan practice. He says, do you worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink? Look at the birds of the air, how God provides for them. Do you worry about what you're going to dress or what you're going to be dressed in? Well, look at the flowers. Look at the lilies of the field. Solomon in all his splendor was not arrayed like one of these. So don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to wear. That's the stuff the pagans do. But I want to tell you, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all of these things will get taken care of. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough worries of its own. That's what he tells us. So there's that tug of war. There's an, as we talk about being prone before God or prostrate before God, one of the things I've noticed as I study this is how often that word or that um, spiritual posture, that posture of worship is found in the Bible. It's, it starts all the way with Abraham who just falls face down before God when God talks to him and makes his covenant with him. It goes, it goes on to Moses. It goes on uh, to Elijah. It goes, it goes on into, in the New Testament where you can hardly get through a story in the gospel without finding that people are on their face before Jesus Christ. And then you get to the very end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and you find out that the 24 elders are prostrate, are falling face down before the throne of God, before the glory of God. How does that happen? Well, look again at what happened on Mount Carmel. Here's a question. Whose God's going to light the sacrifice? And Elijah invites Baal's gods to go first. There's more of you, so just get it done first. And they go at it. They build the altar. They put the wood on it. They cut up the bowl, and they put the pieces of the bowl and then it's still morning, and they begin to pray, and they begin to jump around, and they begin to beg, Baal, to respond and light the sacrifice. Baal, the God with the lightning rod, why don't you light this fire? It gets to be noon, and Elijah starts to make fun of them. I don't know if that was so wise of him, but that's what he does. But he's kind of pointing out, is, is this... God may be too busy to pay attention to you. Uh, maybe he's, he's on a trip. Maybe, maybe uh, he's dealing with other people. Uh, maybe he's taking a nap and he doesn't have time. I mean, he's got to sleep, right? And he's got so many other things. It's very interesting. And I read this again in one of the commentaries. 
that some of this may be a euphemism, a nice way of saying what Elijah was really saying. And the suggestion is that what Elijah was really saying is, Baal's in the bathroom. He's not available right now. He's in the bathroom. I don't know whether that's legitimate or not, but that's what commentators suggest. And Elijah was making that kind of fun of these problems. And, and they go at it more and, and more vigorously and more frantically. And they're cutting themselves. And the blood is flowing. But there is no response. Nothing happens. And it's interesting how it's put here in verse 29. There's no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. And then Elijah goes into action. And the way he does this, it's interesting, he's reminding the people in a number of ways of, of, of who this God is that he represents. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Let me just point out some of the ways in which he does that. One of the things that he does, verse 30, is, first of all, repairs the altar of the Lord that is in ruins. So, so there was an altar that long ago had been built on Mount Carmel that had been used for the worship of God. And Elijah goes back to this altar and he fixes it up. And he fixes it up by gathering 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. Twelve stones. The kingdom had been divided at this point. There's the northern ten tribes, and that's uh, where who uh, Ahab and Jezebel ruled over. That's where Elijah was. There were the southern two tribes. And Elijah was really calling attention to the fact that's an illegitimate dividing. This is the God of Israel. This is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the, the spiritual fathers of all of these people. There was these 12 stones. And then, and then he... <laughs> and, and this altar is then flooded with water, gallons and gallons of water. So, so there's no misunderstanding that there's anything that's happening that's out of line here. And it fills the ditch that he has dug around the altar, and it just douses the sacrifice. And then at the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward. He he was stepping right into the rhythm of what was going on at the temple at the time. There were these certain times of the day when the priest would offer the sacrifices, and this was the time of the evening sacrifice. And this is the very moment where Elijah now prays. And he just prays a powerful and short prayer. Let it be known, you're the God in Israel, and I'm your servant, I've done all these things. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, soul. These people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Did you catch that? You're doing this, God. Just demonstrate that. And instantaneously, there's whatever it was, a lightning bolt, fire from God, consumes the fire, it consumes everything. The sacrifice, the wood, the altar, the water, everything. And the people fall down. And the word prostrate is used here in our, in our translation. They fall 
prostrate and cry, the Lord, he's God. The Lord, he's God. The Hebrew word is sagat. Sagat. That's the word that's used. And the word simply means bend low. Be submissive. And I don't know that many of us will be doing this physically this morning, but it speaks to where our hearts ought to be. Pastor Scott just testifies that he was so overwhelmed by this act of God in creation there at Estes Park in Colorado that he just fell prone on the ground in the grass. And that's, in fact, the impact that it has here. Be lowly, be submissive. God turned their hearts back to him. What's he doing with you this morning? You know, this sacrifice of Elijah, as did all of those sacrifices in the Old Testament, points toward another sacrifice, the sacrifice of the Lamb of God on the cross. And when you think about what it took, what you see is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was all in, in terms of the mission that the Father laid on him, that he agreed to, he was part of that, that he was all in. He was absolutely submissive to what the Father had in mind for him. Giving up the glories of heaven, becoming as one of us, submitting to the injustice of Pilate, hanging on the cross, dying a criminal death. And he does it, now catch this, he does it for the sake of people whose hearts were closed, who were dead, who were suspicious that they weren't going to get taken care of, who were suspicious that they were getting ripped off. Their hearts were dead. And chasing after the deadness that the bales of our culture give us and offer us. That's the context in which Jesus did this. And then we read something wonderfully powerful. This is from Ephesians. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God's Spirit just enables us to just fall down. And I imagine it perhaps as Scott illustrated in the video that he left us. I can imagine it even a little something like this, maybe just falling on your knees and just going all the way down like this and just saying, Lord, I'm, I'm overwhelmed. I don't know what I deserved. I was dead. 
And you made me alive. And you are Lord. You are Lord. And I give myself to you. You know, older people like us have a little bit more difficulty getting up from those positions. In our staff meeting this week, um, we looked at another chapter in the book that we're going through, Dangerous Wonder, Michael Iaconelli. And the title of the chapter was Naive Grace. Naive Grace. And he just tries to describe the childlike grace or the naive, and I, I had a little trouble with that word, but the more I read and the more we talked about it, the, the more I began to understand the power of that title, naive grace. Iaconelli starts the chapter with describing a little picture that he got from a little two-year-old in his church. And it's a picture that was given to him when uh, one Sunday morning, and this little two-year-old gave him this picture, and, and, and as he was the pastor in the church, and, and she said, look at this. I worked so hard on this, and I want to give this to you, Pastor Iaconelli, Mike Iaconelli. And Mike said, I was, I was kind to her, and I said, oh, it's a, you must have really worked very hard on this. It's a very nice picture. And then he tells us what was really going on in his mind. And what was really going on in his mind was, boy, she didn't do very good with that, did she? She couldn't stay within the lines? What's the matter with it? We've got to teach her to color within the lines. That's what we need to do. And she should take this back and work on it some more. And then he caught himself. And he said, you know, that's exactly what God has done with us. We can't paint inside the lines or color inside the lines. We can't do that. And yet, God receives us wonderfully, powerfully, turns our hearts to him and has us, perhaps not physically, but emotionally, spiritually, and maybe physically, on our faces before him, proclaiming the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... We don't know quite what to do with this. And we find ourselves, God, just um, uh, needing you to work in us powerfully, needing us to not just tug at our hearts, but work in our hearts and make us alive so that we may bow down, so that we may lay prone before you, so that we may be prostrate before you completely ready to submit ourselves.